The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. Well, please remain standing for the reading of God's Word, if you will. (coughs) Turn to Matthew chapter 28, reading the first 15 verses. That's on page 835 in your pew Bible. Let's give our attention then to the reading of God's Word. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and ran to tell his disciples, and behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Merciful God, be with us now as we seek to profit from your word and worship you as we do it. Give us worshipful hearts that our hearing might be mixed with faith. Do for us, Lord, what we cannot do for ourselves. Without you, we can do nothing, but with you all things are possible. So bless us richly, Lord, in speaking and in hearing that the name of Christ, the name of you, our triune God, might be exalted in our midst. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is undoubtedly one of the central tenets of the Christian faith, so much so that Paul says, without the resurrection, we Christians are of all men to be most pitied. And that, uh, the narrative before us, really proves Paul's point. 
If the resurrection has not taken place or one simply denies the resurrection, you are uh, to be pitied above all else. For we have in the narrative before us not only the facts of the resurrection, but we also have the differing reactions to our Lord's resurrection. We have two reactions of unbelief. Two reactions of unbelief. In the soldiers, we witness a deathly fear coming upon them. In the Jewish authorities, we witness a desperate denial. And yet we also see a believing response in the two women, the two Marys. We see that response of devoted worship. And so it is with the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The resurrection demands a response from all who hear of it and all who consider it. The resurrection demands a response. What will be your response this day, dear friend? I want to consider the text before us under the three headings, really, the three reactions to the resurrection that I've already mentioned. In verses 1 to 4, there is the deathly fear of the soldiers. Then I want to jump to verse 11 and deal with the second response of unbelief. That's the response of desperate denial. And then thirdly, we'll come back to verse 5 through verse 10 and look at the response of devoted worship. So we have deathly fear, desperate denial, devoted worship. Their first response recorded for us is the response of the soldiers, a response of deathly fear. We know there's a company of guards who have been sent to stand guard over the tomb to make sure the body could not be removed. Uh, And the first response we read is one of deathly fear when they firstly see the angel of the Lord, the emissary of the risen Christ. We learn learn there in verse 1, and children, this is the first answer of our questions. It's Sunday morning. It's the first day of the week. Now, we'll come back to the significance of that next week when we consider some deeper theological implications of the resurrection. But it's the first day. Christ has been dead in the tomb since the Friday night. The tomb has been sealed with a large cylindrical stone and then sealed also on top of that to ensure it remains closed. The two Marys, we read, have gone to see the tomb. Jesus has been in the grave three days. None of the Gospels record that the disciples or the women expected anything other than Jesus to still be in the grave. That was their expectation. And undoubtedly, that was also the expectation of the soldiers who had stood guard outside the grave, that Jesus, the corpse, the dead body, would still be inside the grave. Now, we don't know whether these were Roman guards or whether they were temple guards. It doesn't really matter. The point is, these men were not sympathetic to the Christ. They were not sympathetic to the disciples. We see them in verse 11, 12, and 13 playing a part in deception and spreading the rumor that Christ's body has been stolen by his disciples. Either way, Roman or Jewish, they are not sympathetic to Jesus. And it's at this point in the text, verse 2, that we read the word 
Behold. It's a triggering word in Hebrew and in Greek. Hear the Greek. It's a triggering word. It means to us, the reader, uh, sit up, listen, take heed. Something amazing is about to happen. What is that amazing thing? It's an earthquake. An earthquake takes place, and lo, an angel from heaven descends. We read the angel came along, rolled back this enormous heavy stone, and sat on it. But more importantly than that, we read something most valuable to us, most important to us, about the angel's appearance. Verse 3, we read this, his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. Does that put you in mind of anyone? Does it not remind us of the description of the Son of Man, the Eternal Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in the Old Testament, in Daniel and other places, where we have that vivid description of the one to come? And does it not also remind us of the description of our Lord Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation? in his glory, his majesty, his strength and dominion. Now, I'm not saying here that this angel of the Lord is the angel of the Lord. It's not the Son. This is literally an angel of the Lord, a messenger, an ambassador of the triune God of Christ himself. But the description of his appearance is theologically significant for us as we're considering resurrection. The appearance of the angel represents the glory of the risen Christ. The appearance of the angel represents the glory of the risen Christ. That is to say, the angel appears clothed for this very moment clothed in the resurrection glory of the Savior. This is not the universal description of angels in Scripture. It's not the description of the angels at the conception announcement of Christ. It's not the description of angels at the birth announcement of Christ. This is the description of an angel at the resurrection announcement of Christ. Very different. The angel appears clothed, Fit for the moment, the Messiah has been raised from the dead and is filled with glory. And here is his emissary, with the appearance of lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And his appearance reflects the content of the message that he is going to bring. Jumping ahead to verse 5 and 6 just for a moment, the angel says, Do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. The angel has come in a fashion fit for the moment, dressed for the king, reflecting the glory of the risen Savior. And it's the glory of the risen Savior, the earthquake, the appearance of this emissary of Christ, which does what? And this is the answer to question two, children, strikes deathly fear, deathly fear into the heart of these soldiers. We read verse four, and for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. We can smile when we read that. 
Christians can smile at the irony of what is going on in this moment. Here we have these live men, these guards, supposedly standing guard at the tomb of a dead man, and at the sight of the angel, they become as dead men. Here they are, live men guarding supposedly a corpse, and they become corpse-like. The ground under them has shaken. An angel has come down from heaven, has rolled back the stone. And their fear, their deathly fear, is the natural and necessary response of all those who live in antipathy and hatred towards the Christ. I want to say that again. This is the natural and necessary reaction of those who live in antipathy and hatred towards the Christ. Some have suggested this deathly state was the soldiers that they're knocked unconscious. Others state they're in some sort of catatonic state. Furthermore, the text makes clear this had a profound effect upon them as they went forward. Verse 11 There's a company of guards, not just two. I think pictures often show two, do they not? But there's a company of guards. Verse 11, while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city. That means some of the guard didn't go into the city. They've been scattered by this happening. The commentator William Hendrickson has a rather lovely section in his commentary on Matthew's gospel. And he's thinking back to Psalm 2 looking at this uh, resurrection through the lens of Psalm 2. You remember Psalm 2, why are the nations raging, the peoples plotting in vain, kings and rulers coming together to throw down the Lord and his anointed. We're told in Psalm 2 verse 4 that he who sits in heaven laughs. God derides them and mocks them, those who would cast down the Lord and his anointed. Hendrickson says, the stone, the seal, The guard, what a sense of security all this had given to the chief priests and the Pharisees, yet in the sight of heaven, all this show of strength spelled clumsy, fantastic futility. In Joseph of Arimathea's garden, the Almighty was laughing. He uttered his voice and the earth melted. The enemy was cast down. Hendrickson continues, By means of the resurrection of Christ from the grave and the mighty earthquake that appropriately accompanied it, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ not only laughed in the faces of the plotters, he also smiled upon his dear children. For what he was actually saying was this, I have accepted my son's sacrifice as a complete ransom for the sins of all who take refuge in him. Friends, the Savior was no longer in the grave. What a joy that is for all who take refuge in Christ. A joy to our hearts this very day, this very moment. But fear and dread upon those who withstand him. Friends, I want to say to you today, if you're 
faithful in Christ, trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, bask in the facts and the relevance and the victory of the resurrection of your Savior. He was not in the grave. Jesus Christ is risen today. Hallelujah. But it's also a call to any of you here today that know not Christ, that do not love him, do not trust him. Friends, we have to say this from the testimony of Scripture, the deathly fear that came upon these soldiers will be nothing compared to the deathly fear you will experience before the judgment seat of Christ. And so their response is a call to you right now not to waste another day of your life without Christ and receive him now as the crucified, risen, and shortly to be ascended Savior, as we'll read in Matthew's Gospel. Put your faith and trust in him. Forsake yourself. Forsake the world. Be found in him. Live by him rather than be condemned by him. But the response of unbelief, the deathly fear, has a counterpart. And that response is desperate denial. We're moving to verse 11. And children, because I reordered my points, this is question five in your outline. What's the response of the Jews? Verse 11, it's of desperate denial. Desperate denial. We read in verse 11 that some of the soldiers who were bold enough to go back to their earthly masters take back the news of what has happened to the chief priests. The chief priests gather together with the elders and concoct this fantastic story. It's a story which is made up. It's a story which has no basis in fact. And this is what unbelief does when confronted with the facts and truth of God. Unbelief will resort to all manner of chicanery to avoid the inevitable truths and claims of Christ. If you doubt that, for example, go on YouTube. Uh, YouTube Christian Apologists College Campuses, and you will see just how far unbelievers will go, uh, all manner of irrationality, all manner of lies, of name-calling, of aggressiveness, simply to avoid a rational argument about Christ. Think about those about you who will do anything, say anything, deny anything, engage in any degree of irrationality, to avoid acceptance of God and his Messiah. And this is precisely what the Jews do. It's desperate. It's desperate denial. Their lack of principle is staggering in the text before us. Instead of saying, hold on, this Jesus who he put to death, he said he would be raised from the dead in three days. Could it actually be he's no longer in the tomb? Could it be he's been raised from the dead? Instead of saying that, what do they do? They resort to bribery. They bribe the guards who have brought back this message of an angel and an empty tomb. They bribe them to do what? To lie. Verse 13, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. 
So the chief priests wash their hands of it. It's the, it's the guards' fault. But the guards are rewarded handsomely for their lies. You see, this is just a made-up story. It's just made up. It's unsubstantiated lies. It's deception. They're in that place of desperate denial. What do we do? Well, they do what they had always done. Resort to lies. Bribery. Moreover, Matthew tells us, and he's probably writing his gospel 30 years after our Lord had been crucified and was raised. He tells them, verse 15, that humanly speaking, this lie was effective. Why is it effective? Because they were vested, they were invested in that lie. Verse 15, they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day, 30 years plus of lies. Because they were unwilling to accept the truth of Messiah being raised from the dead. Friends, we need to understand this. The denial of God is something that the unbeliever is invested in, personally invested in. And we know they will go to great lengths to deny God the truth and his claims. And yet their denial, friends, has no grounds. To deny God is an act of intellectual bankruptcy. To deny God is an act of moral bankruptcy. It is utterly irrational. And friends, I want to say this to you. You ought not fear the engagement with unbelievers because you know they're wrong. You know they're wrong. And the challenge is not in the issues like, does the Bible contradict itself? There's answers for all those things. The challenge to them is, how do you even know what a contradiction is? If you deny God, there's no such thing as a contradiction. If you deny God, there's no such thing as right, wrong, good, or bad. All your judgments, all your opinions are purely subjective, for they have no foundation in reality. If there is no God, if there is no resurrection of Christ from the dead, friends, I say, fear not. Yes, there's work to be done. There's hard work to be done investigating how we should approach unbelievers. But don't approach them as if they've got one up on you. They're wrong. Plain and simple. They're living in a desperate denial. And it's a desperate denial that will come to an end and they won't be able to live in it forever because they will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. No one will deny the Savior on that day. But happily, we also have in our text the response of devoted worship. Blessed and devoted worship. And notice, it's the women again. It's the women the message of fear and dread, which came with the angel uh, for the soldiers, well, the angel brings quite a different message to the women. This is question three, children. Uh, we read there in verse five, he says to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said, come see where he lay past tense come see where he lay past tense the first thing she they say the, the, sorry the angel says fear not 
Do not be afraid. This is a message of heaven, a message which has been consistently brought to the saints throughout time and throughout Scripture. I think I might have said this once before. I'm not sure if it's true, actually. Uh, Somebody has once said there's the appearance of the idea of do not be afraid 365 times in the Bible. I think that's one of those urban myths. But fear not and do not be afraid is said explicitly 66 times in Scripture. Plus all the other be courageous and so on. But do not be afraid, fear not, said 66 times once would be enough for us, dear Christian, to have no fear. But God says it to us 66 times in Scripture, and he says it here again. It's the message of heaven to those who actually love the Savior and are devoted to the Savior. The message is this, you have nothing to fear at the presence of of God. To fear the Lord is to know the Lord, to love the Lord, to reverence the Lord as your creator, your judge, but your redeemer. And so the slavish fear that we see in the soldiers here, the deathly fear seen in the soldiers, is expelled from Christian experience. It has nothing to do with us. It belongs not in your experience, dear Christian. No, the Christian is bold in his approach to God. The Christian is bold because the grace of God is large in our lives. The mercy of God has shaped our entire lives. His forgiveness, his love is grand and at the forefront of our hearts and of our minds. It's the boldness which is in no small measure part of the angel's message. He is not here. For he has risen. As he said, he's already been raised from the grave. He's not in the tomb. Even though the tomb was sealed, even though the tomb had soldiers outside it, he was not there. He had risen. Note the words, as he said. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. What Jesus says comes true. No questions. The angel here is pointing these women to what the Lord had already taught them. He's reminding them in a most gentle fashion, remember what the Lord said to you. Remember what you have forgotten in your time of grief and sorrow. Remember, remember what he says to you. It's a gentle reminder, a gentle push to their lack of faith, a gentle rebuke even to their lack of faith. And the evidence of the assertion he is not here is implicit in the text. The angel says, come see where he lay. And they did. We know that. They look inside. He's not there. He's gone. He's been raised from the dead. The angel commands them, verse 7, to go quickly to the disciples, tell them that he has been risen from the dead and that he's going to Galilee and there he will meet them. And they obey They obey. They departed, verse 8, quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell the disciples. A different kind of fear. 
than we've already seen in this text. Fear with great joy. That's Christian fear. And it's at this point in our text that they actually meet the risen Savior, verse 9. And behold, Jesus met them and said greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet, and they worshipped him. It's question four, children. They took hold of his feet, and they worshipped him. Pause for a moment, friends. This was their beloved master back from the dead. They'd seen him put on trial before those kangaroo courts. They'd seen him mocked, nailed to a cross. They were there at the foot of the cross. They saw him die. They saw him buried. And he had been in the tomb three days, and they had mourned his loss. And here he is, stood before them, and he says to them, Greetings. Perhaps a better translation there is, Be glad. Or some translations say, peace be to you. Isn't that wonderful? In the context of dread and terror and shock and awe, Jesus says to his children, be glad. It's a welcome and a contrasting message to those who did not receive the risen Christ. Such is the reality, friends, of the appearance of of the Son of God to the children of God. He brings with him a message of be glad. He says to them also, verse 10, do not be afraid. It's a most staggering moment, I suggest, in these women's lives to meet the risen Christ. We ought not lose that drama of the moment. They left the angel for fear and joy. They saw Jesus. He says, peace to you or be glad. And what do they do? They fall at his feet and they worship him. Real feet. A real resurrection, not some ghost or phantom. They fell down before him and worshipped him. Friends, take heed of this. This is the instant reaction of the Christian to coming to meet with their Savior, to fall at his feet and worship. This is the posture of heart which produces in them the posture of body. They fall down before him, not willing to look him in the face, as it were, but they put their face to the ground. They lay hold of his feet and they worship. One commentator calls this a recognized act of supplication and homage. Why is this? Because they were devoted to him. Don Carson describes these women as last at the cross, first at the tomb. Isn't that special? And notwithstanding the struggle of their faith, with the actual resurrection taking place, they were quick to believe and quick to worship. Why? They had always been devoted to him. It tells us these women traveled with our Lord from Nazareth, from 
from Galilee to Judea and ministered to him along the way. They were devoted to him. Why? Because he had forgiven them. He had loved them. He had made them his own. He had changed their lives, both now and forever, immeasurably, and they were devoted to him. Let's close with this thought, friends. We need to see these women here and their response as the central and necessary response of all our lives. If you're Christian, this needs to be the central and necessary response of your life. It is the immediate reaction of the heart that knows Christ to bring him worship. It's the unprompted reaction. Of course, there's the great prompt of heaven and grace. But as a Christian, our unprompted desire ought to be worship. A forgiven spirit wants to worship. A forgiven spirit ought not need reminders to be in worship at home or at church. We ought not need convincing that we should be worshippers. The forgiven spirit yearns to worship, does it not? Because it understands what's been done for it. And friends, the, the simple truth is this. That response of devoted worship aligns and sets the tone for our whole lives. That's just the fact of the matter. In worship, we are there to give glory to God, but in his mercy, he brings alignment and strength and grace to us in the very motions of worship. A proper attitude to worship, a proper attitude to the first day of the week, as we read in verse 1, aligns our priorities and desires all week long, at least if we're worshipping properly. It reminds us, dear friends, today that we live not for ourselves, but we live for our God. We live for each other. We are not our own. We have been bought with a price, bought by the precious lamb, blood of the lamb without spot or blemish. You're bought by the lamb that lay in the grave, bought by the lamb that was raised from the dead. We have been bought by the ascended Christ who tells us he is with us until the end of the age. Let's pray.